Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. This show is a chance for me to go on the record with my colleagues, mentors, and heroes in the music industry. We'll talk about their projects, their philosophy, how they relax their grid, and what that even means. In this first episode, I interview Patrick Alberg, a remarkable Swedish musician living in Chicago. Patrick and I have played a couple gigs together, including a memorable trio show with fiddler Brittany Haas at Seaman Violins in Skokie, Illinois. We had a wonderful day preparing for the show and playing it, but I also remember that day because I was horribly sick and threw up right before we went on stage. Here's my interview with Patrick. I hope you're all well and healthy as you listen to it. Patrick Alberg, welcome to Relax Your Grid. Thank you so much. You and I are friends. We met each other in Chicago, and I am such a fan of your music and and of you as a person. And I'm so excited to talk to you about your guitar album. It's literally my favorite guitar album I've ever heard. Thank you. <laughs> that's That's very kind of you. Do you remember when you were preparing to make the record and you and I talked about like where to record it in Chicago. Cause I, my one contribution to this record is I suggested where you record it. <laughs> you have so many contributions to this record, but yes, that was one of the, one of the real contributions you made for sure. Early on Victor Sanders. Yeah. He has that, yeah. that studio in, is it Lakeview in Chicago? Yes. On school street, by yeah. the Chicago music exchange kind of. Yeah. Yeah, and it was Dennis Cahill who introduced me to Victor, and I had such a great experience with Victor, and I think Dennis was on the road a lot with Martin Hayes, and so it didn't seem like Dennis would be able to record you, although that would have been amazing too. But I just feel like between you and Victor, you came up with like the most beautiful guitar tones, and it, like it is such an intimate, beautiful work of art. Thank you. Sincerely. <laughs> What led you to make that album? Because when I first met you, I, I thought of you as a fiddle player, and I, I don't think I even knew you played guitar, and then all of a sudden you make this gorgeous guitar record. What what got you to the point where you wanted to record some guitar tunes? Yeah, um, I think I've always had a little bit of an identity crisis with guitar and any instrument that I play, actually, for that matter. Um, and I've been playing guitar for a long time. You know, I, I started on guitar and I've done all the you know, the heavy metal stuff. And I've had a little dip my toes in jazz in high school. I wanted to sound like Pat Metheny for a while. Um, and so when I when I started playing fiddle, uh, when I went to folk music school in Sweden, I was really also starting to re-look at the guitar in a way, see if I could kind of reinvent some of my own playing. I was really tired of the way I was seeing the guitar. So I started uh, messing with uh, tunings, like alternate tunings. And that's kind of how I started, because the whole album is recorded on Dadgad. And that, for me, kind of removed a little bit of the boxy thinking I had before. And it kind of made it so I had to think of it more as a violin. And as I was learning the violin at the time, I was also kind of applying the same thinking to the guitar. Uh, a lot of sort of open strings and first position stuff. I was, yeah, I was definitely trying to make it sound like a, like a lute or a, you know, yeah, like a lute or a fiddle even. Uh, and so I found that using that tuning would just kind of like really inspired me to start working on some of these like Swedish fiddle tunes that I was learning on fiddle at the same time. And sometimes, honestly, it was like out of frustration, like not sounding good enough on fiddle. Oh, wow. I would just try and like go to the guitar and be like, okay, well, maybe I can play it on the guitar and it will sound better. 
Um, so that was kind of part of what got me going. And then I wrote a couple of tunes on the guitar uh, and kind of just found it to be speaking to me uh, in a way. And, there, and yeah, it, it came with like the whole nylon string package. I really thought that was something I liked, the tone of that. Uh, and then it just took a lot of years of working on that. Uh, and it wasn't until I moved to Chicago. I mean, this is years, years later when I started. I bought a harmony guitar, this little sort of like, I don't know, it's made out of plywood or something. Yeah. Uh, but I loved it and it sounded good. And I was like, that was the first time I owned a guitar in a long time for years so then i started working up these tunes and uh man then it went pretty quick like as soon as i had the concept down it was pretty quick the actual writing process or like working out the music yeah um but then everything else takes time obviously kind of like so i'd really thank you for like pushing me into actually recording it i have you to thank for that for sure i think that wouldn't have been recorded otherwise wow well i'm honored i I don't know if this is true, but I'm just going to put out there that I'm probably the person who has streamed that album the most on Spotify. I love it. You're one of my diehard like 12 listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm number one, one of 12. Um, really, because like there are moments when we're around home and it's just like, oh, let's put some music on. But you don't want it to be like some rager. Um, but you, also that there's this desire to set a mood. And I feel like one of the reasons I love your records so much is that from the first, literally the first note, like it sets a mood that never, never stops for the, for the entire, until the record's over. Um, and it's just like, we, I put the record on or Sally puts that record on and I can just sigh, like a sigh of relief just comes out of my body involuntarily. <laughs> like, ah, there's Patrick. I'm glad. Yeah, I've had people tell me that they fall asleep to it and I'm like, I'm not offended by that at all. I think it's like the highest honor actually that somebody would like to fall asleep to my music. Um, Totally. I have a, a, a near a spin on that that's very close, which is that probably my favorite albums are all of all time are, are the ones that I would put on like for the last hour that I'm awake. Like if I'm if I'm up at 2 a.m., which doesn't happen anymore with a baby, but, you know, when I was 19 or 20 or so and I hadn't yet gone to bed, but it was that quiet time when around me there weren't any other sounds like what album would I put on? And it was Martin Hayes and Dennis. Cahill, The Lonesome Touch, definitely now mm, this record. Love it. Um, and just a couple more. There aren't that many that I know of where the music is gorgeous. And as a, as a fiddle tune player, like I like to hear fiddle tunes at that time, but I don't want to hear like square dance music. I don't want to hear sure. bluegrass. Um, so, wow. I did want to ask, did you write any of the pieces on the record? I did. There was just one tune that I wrote on there. Um, and it's kind of a mess of a tune, just like the actual, the actual form of the tune. Um, but I've been really inspired by Norwegian music, my whole adult life. And man, I'm so obsessed with Hardanger fiddle music Yeah, and you know, the whole like howling and spring out and like the whole sound of it is so awesome. The rhythmic element of it. I'm yeah, absolutely obsessed. So, um, yeah. So Werther's dream I wrote on there, uh, that's like the only original on the album uh, that I would say, that, yeah, that I wrote myself. I have some other tunes I've written, but that didn't make it to the album. Uh, so, yeah, I wrote that tune, Werther's Dream. That, okay, Sally and I were talking about this because she wondered if you had written it. And we were wondering what the story, why did you call it that? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a long story, but I'm going to kind of like just... 
when I was making this album, I was definitely wrestling with a lot of stuff. Like when I was when I was recording or like writing the tune, I had definitely written the tune, and then after the fact, came up with a title just to kind of name it something. I was reading uh, uh, this uh, what's what's it called, the Sorrows of Young Werther, mm-hmm. uh, and there was this kind of like emotional rawness of that that felt sort of immature in a in a way that I could identify with. Like this whole song was just like birthed out of just trying to come up with stuff that made me feel anything. Yeah. So it felt kind of like this. Um, it felt like this, uh, and it's part of the quote on the inside of the of the album too, of the sleeve of the album, uh, about uh, waking up from this kind of dreamlike state. And I felt that this whole tune felt kind of like ephemeral that way. Uh, and then I thought there was a cool name. Honestly, I think sometimes that can be enough for me to inspire me. Like it sounded like it was a name that worked. The only problem was I feel like it's very similar with the with the candy. Uh, oh. Isn't there like a candy <laughs> as well? There's like that. Yeah, so I feel like. But if that's how people think of it, like uh, some kind of, you know, cola nougat thing, then that's great, too. Yeah, there are, mu- there are much, much worse associations. Sure. Well, and, you know, even if I think sometimes it can be nice to just have something that that can evoke thoughts and ideas. Like if you guys were kind of arguing or figuring out what it was about, then maybe that was like the purpose enough for that. Well, and also it stands out from the other tracks because everything else is Swedish in terms sure. of the names. And then all of a sudden, it's like, here's this, these English, like a name and, and then an English word. Yeah. And I definitely wanted to kind of allude to the whole, like, you know, John Brown's dream. There's a lot of dreams and fiddle tunes, right? Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. And the whole tune, I mean, calling it guitar tunes, I think I wanted to be a little tongue in cheek in that. That they're like tunes, not for guitar, but they're now being played on guitar. So. It's so interesting to hear you for as long as I've known you, I had no idea like the struggles that you have gone through with your fiddle identity. Mm -hmm. We've we've talked about other struggles that we have as musicians and as artists um, off, off of microphones, but it's really revealing to learn that like guitar was where you took solace from, from learning these, these beautiful tunes on the fiddle and, and, and feeling either inadequate or just like, not having your identity where you wanted it to be on the fiddle and then but but going to the guitar was the answer um and it and it i love that it's the opposite of how i met you because when i met you like i think i said earlier i thought of you as a fiddle player and a great fiddle player like i love Mm -hmm. your fiddle playing when we've played music together i think mostly you've been on the fiddle um and so you know it's just a matter of when we meet someone for the first time especially as musicians whatever instrument they might be playing that first time might create a, an impression that's not actually accurate to their, sure. <laughs> their journey. Um, yeah, definitely. So the name of this podcast, Relax Your Grid, I just told you right before we recorded, um, is based on a concept that I heard off of Jacob Collier, who's this incredible British musician. And Jacob does all this work in logic and overdubbing hundreds of tracks of himself Um but he, he cautions people not to get too obsessed with quantizing sounds, like mm. getting things equally spaced between them in terms of rhythms or, you know, there's also the concept of like whether auto-tune is a good idea um, or how, how to use it. And so I took, I took a, a phrase that Jacob said in one of his live streams uh, of a logic session, I think, where he says to, to, the, to the viewer to soften their grids. And I thought, oh, relax your grid. That would be a good bumper sticker and podcast name. Sure. Um, 
But what I wanted to talk to you about relative to it is Swedish music in particular, but maybe other genres of music that you know, because you're a polyglot. Um, <laughs> like Swedish music is not, it's not like techno. Like there's not like the beats aren't divided equally every time. Correct. There, There's a stretching and contracting of the rhythm and it it's glorious and, and mm-hmm. fascinating. And I wonder if you could talk like first, just generally, if someone's not aware of that, like how would you describe to a music fan who hasn't heard traditional Swedish Swedish music, like what's the general concept there? And then maybe we'll get a little bit more specific about how how varied it can be. Sure. Yeah. And I think you 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 said it very nicely. It's not very it's not metered. It's how I think yeah. of it always. I mean, we definitely have dance styles where you have a clearer pulse, but yeah, you're right. There is a lot of space to push and pull. And the way I kind of think of it is, I forgot who said this, but this you can think of it as kind of gravitational nodes, sort of like wells of gravity that you kind of get sucked in towards. Yeah. So like the first, you know, in a Polska beat or something that can be the first beat feels like this heavy, like, and then you kind of lift and then you sink down again and you lift and you sink. And that feeling of push and pull feels very natural. And the way you can stretch the phrases, um, I'm so used to it and like listening to music that way that there is space between stuff. And which is also why I wanted to record uh, or, you know, foot tapping has been a big part of like how I relate to the way I play on both guitar and fiddle right? or piano or whatever it is. I like to be able to stretch and play with that within myself, right? So I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm controlling the rhythm, but I'm also like feeling it in real time. And you're right, there is like a lot of specifics on how you can divide up that three, um, and especially in Polska music. And if you haven't heard it before, it's kind of like, you think of Polska as kind of like the waltz, you know, beat, it's like the one, two, three. Um, but really putting the emphasis either on the lift of the two or shortening the one or shortening the three, uh, all kind of flavors, yeah, that make it feel a little kind of ambiguous. But when you're dancing Polska music, and I think that's maybe the next thing I want to segue into, is kind of like um, the music is really rooted in dance. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's something that you, when you see it being danced uh, on video or if you do it yourself, it's, a lot of that ambiguity goes away and it sits in your body instead. Right. I really noticed that, and I'm not a good dancer, you know, particularly, but when you dance Polska or if you dance something, you can really feel it. Uh, tunes that might feel difficult on paper if you saw the notation would look very complex can certainly feel kind of like uh, natural when you're dancing them Uh, and I've noticed that with American music too you know I've been humbled and I've been playing contra or square dance you really notice the relationship Uh, and it can be so powerful to be like not just the background but kind of the driving force of a dance Um, oh that's so dance that's music and maybe yeah and you talked about techno i mean i guess it's like the the the, the un-techno because it is dance right. music in the sense that uh it definitely comes right. from that tradition yeah and techno is incredible dance music like it it, yep. it achieves the same goal that polskas do or that you know a reel does for for square dancers or contra da- contra dancers or jigs like it's amazing that music that might be um manipulated into digital precision 
could have the same goal of getting people to dance for hours right um as music that is has the you know those gravitational nodes um that are just so apparent and incredible in swedish music and then and then you get to something like old time fiddle tunes which you and i have played together where there may well be little ebbs and flows to the rhythm but it's not not every measure does that in the same way right um it might be just like gradual swells or slight little, you know, the fiddle player pulls ahead while the rest of the band kind of chugs more evenly. Sure. How, how does that then, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but like, how does that make you think about the world in terms of like, here we are, you're in, are you in Chicago right now? Yeah. Yeah. You're in Chicago. I'm in Colorado, uh, Fort Collins. We're talking through technology. Like the only reason we're able to do this is all this digital technology. Sure. And yet, sometimes it's easy to get sucked into that and, 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 and for the technology to kind of take hold. Do you, do you think a lot about, you know, the usefulness of technology versus how, you know, how nice it is to go out and take a walk for a while and, and not, not be connected? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, uh, just the way I relate musically to the digital world is like kind of consumes me. For, yeah. for good and bad. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the way I see my fellow musicians right now is mostly through social media yeah. or, you know, a live stream or something. It feels like right. there has been a communal aspect that seems we're all sitting in the same room all of a sudden, this like internet space. Right. And sometimes it feels a little cramped and sometimes it feels really cozy and nice. Yeah. Um, but definitely. And I mean, I miss that music making aspect of being out in the world. But I also think there is like a natural osmosis that can happen with digital media and folk music i mean i've i actually try to think about this a lot i haven't really come up with any great like answers maybe but i do try to think of tradition like what would it actually mean in 2021 to be like a quote-unquote authentic folk musician (laughs) you know how do we how do we look at that now now that we have access to uh, everything online, you know, I can listen to every source recording of every fiddler basically that I want to listen to. Right. And so what does that make me? Or like, how do I, how do I then absorb that and like, you know, put it out into the world again, into something that is me. And you talked a little bit, we talked about techno or like electronic music and I'm trying to find the way where this all fits together. Right. And kind of a broader musical puzzle. Um, and it seems like we can get stuck a lot as folk musicians in like authenticity, right? We always kind of want to reproduce or conserve yeah. uh, and preserve. And I think those efforts are all really great most times. Um, but I do think about sort of like what this digital age is going to bring in terms of like authenticity for folk music. Uh, and we already mentioned that I'm a bit, you know, I have identity crises all the time with, uh, <laughs> you know, specific instruments. But I can also feel a way sort of about the time, like, you know, what's the, what's the authentic life for a folk musician in 2021? Um, is it teaching online or performing online or doing, you know, or is it really about being out at these like sort of analog folk festivals? Uh, you know, where does like the authenticity sit? And maybe that's the problem is I'm asking the question. Maybe there is no, you know, correct answer to that. I've had similar thoughts, but not recently because I've, I've gotten kind of sick of asking myself, like, what's authentic? I feel like it's in my own head. And this isn't, I promise this isn't me judging you because I I understand this struggle. But in my own head, I think I've realized um, 
and in conversations with my friend Greg Reich, who I made an album with as well, that like authenticity is it's a pretty fraught term and it's a pretty it's a pretty easy way to um, demoralize ourselves as musicians and to limit ourselves. And I think maybe, you know, questions of authenticity for me are best framed when it's like, am I being my authentic self? Like as a whole, as an entire person, not am I fitting into tradition or am I being an authentic old time musician? Because that's a hard thing to judge. And it, I think it's subjective and I think it's, it can be dangerous. Yeah. The, the distinction that that I've been wrestling with for years is is thinking about traditional musicians, whether in Sweden or here in America or elsewhere, who there was generations of traditional musicians who only ever heard music from other living people when they were in the same space. So I would have only ever heard your music if you and I were in the same spot and you had an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the radio happened and all of a sudden we could hear, we as a group of cultures could hear the music of someone else somewhere else. Um, And then, you know, as recording technology became more prevalent and profitable, we could hear recordings that weren't made when we were listening to them. So that, you know, maybe, maybe initial radio broadcasts were live. And so you were hearing something happening, but just not in the same room. Mm -hmm. But then recordings are recordings of things you know, records of things that happened previously that you can then listen to after the fact. And now, like you said, I can go online and I can listen to a source recording and I can jump, I can skip back over several generations. And so rather than listen to my teacher or one of my fiddle teachers, I can listen to someone who they listened to when they were my age. If I think about my students, they could learn a tune from me and then listen to a source recording that I listened to and that my teacher listened to without them ever hearing my teacher or even knowing their name. And it's right. like, it's almost like we have a time machine Yep. and, and we have this ability for better or worse to skip through generations, jump, jump or stumble into sources, um, in our own countries or elsewhere that, I just feel like authenticity is just out the window at that yeah, point. It's like how that's a great point. Like how could you be a Swedish musician and I be an old time musician if I can listen to like a Swedish source recording right. from the forties and have that impact me, or you can listen to an old time recording uh, in Chicago. You know, it, I don't know. It's just absolutely authenticity to me has become a question of being true to oneself as a person, um, but that traditional music is no longer something that has like the, there's not the direct chain, unbroken right. chain from one person to the, to another person that they've shared a room or a porch or a Grange hall with. Sure. And have you noticed, I'm, I'm actually, I want to ask you, since you're so steeped in the like old time community, do you feel like there's pushback against that kind of uh, approach? Cause we obviously, we talk a lot about tradition and we, you know, when we go to a festival or something, we can all feel it that there's like, there are enclaves of more or less authentic and traditional people who play <laughs> with, you know, stronger or, you know, milder opinions on such. So I was just like, how, how, like, have you encountered that yourself? Like, 
the kind of traditional gatekeeping maybe, or I don't know what to call it. Yeah. Authenticity gatekeeping. Yeah. And I think I, I see the value of it when scarcity is involved or when there's like an endangered thing. So Mm. like, you know, if we think about the endangered species, like all the, all the regulations or the protections that might involve like saving this one animal because there's only seven of them left and we want there to be more than seven. Right. I noticed that that gatekeeping is really valuable when it's say there's one person who's 43 years old and they're the only living person who's out going to festivals who knows these 20 tunes from this elderly musician who's feeble and can't get out of the house anymore. Like, at that point, I think it's about like doing everything we can to preserve those tunes so that more than one person knows them. Because maybe that source musician's family didn't play music or they played bluegrass instead of old time or um, that kind of gatekeeping makes sense because it's about keeping alive music that that we want to, to stay around. Yeah. The thing the thing that bothers me is when people are closed minded or um, treat treat like common music of the common good like a tune like soldier's joy which is in no danger of disappearing um like acting like there's only one right way to play that tune or there's only one like you could you must play the if someone were like oh you can only play the chord progression this one way it's like well no that's (laughs) there's no there's no basis in history um of of just recorded music that would say that that's true um so I i feel like there are people who have done incredible work all over the world um, to preserve their culture or that of another culture because they saw that there was a danger that it would go it would go away without being captured. And who knows how much music we've lost because there wasn't someone with the means to do that. Sure. Um, I think the destructive thing is people at festivals who apply that mindset to things that are not in danger and therefore like restrict creative behavior. Because yeah. like, we play music. Like we're not... We don't, I don't think of myself as a preserver of music. Like I play music. So I want to be playful with it. I want to be creative and innovative and explore. When I play with you, I don't want to be thinking about like, oh, I shouldn't do this. And I heard Patrick do that. Like there shouldn't, I don't think there should be that judging. Um, It should be about expressing and and like bonding and and sharing this beautiful thing together. Yeah. does that make sense? It does. And I actually love that you mentioned that kind of like the, the playing aspect of music. It's so important in that sense. And I think about it too. And I actually love what you said about scarcity. And uh, because I guess what I hear is that there could be, and I can totally see this myself, that almost like, you know, when you share a JPEG too many times online and it sort of becomes a little bit pixelated and you lose some of the quality. And I've noticed that sometimes, I mean, there is an argument maybe to be said that some of the music will lose its detail um like in swedish music maybe like there's a trill that no longer gets noticed or there's a Mm. special kind of intonation that gets kind of like weeded out over generations of new musicians who don't pay attention enough or you don't you know dig into that aspect of the tune Uh, but i actually love because i often get stuck in that feeling myself where i'm like man i feel like i missed that quarter tone there like it's not exactly on spot like (laughs) and then you know, that's not healthy either because you're right at the end of the day, if you want to play this tune with another human being, you have to allow yourself to not think as a custodian of like tradition, right. but just like I'm a breathing person who wants to play this tune because it sounds great. Right. And, and it makes that. me feel good to yeah. play it in this setting wherever I am, you know, with my friends or my family or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. 
I since you brought it up, I would love to talk a little bit. Well, listen, actually, as you talk a little bit about intonation, because I've only met a couple Swedish musicians, but each of you has reminded me or taught me that that there is an expanded sense of tonality from the typical Western, like 12 notes in a scale, lining up with what a piano would be tuned to. Um, can you just share a little bit about like the microtonality aspects of, of the Swedish fiddle tradition in, in particular? Sure, absolutely. And uh, yeah, so part of what I love when I was kind of approaching Swedish music and going a little bit deeper um, and listening to source recordings, we always seem to get into this discussion of like, intentionality of tonation of intonation right. so like you'd hear an old woman sing on a wax cylinder and you're like is she doing that on purpose or is she like or is that an accident or a an aspect of her age but i'm really landed in like the fact that tonality is culturally fueled like it's something that yeah. the sense of in tune is something that we agree on yeah uh, and there's probably science to back up some of it you know you have ratios right with fifths and thirds there are like sort of like more harmonious ratios that you can strive for but um what i think it does is like you especially thirds you know we're getting a little specific now about music theory but you know like major or minor like that sound i like that there's something in between that it's not a hard binary point like it's either major yeah. or it's minor now let me tell you when i play fiddle i i i i I suffer all the time because I'm trying constantly to be in tune as much as I can in that very binary way. I'm <laughs> like, this is, has to be in tune. This is a G chord. But, right. um, but when I listen back to music, I'm, I'm never as critical of others in that sense. When I listen to somebody, when I hear somebody play a Swedish tune and they use microtonality, I take it for what it is. Yeah. Like I really listen. I think of it as a color. It's something that it's a different color. It's a shade of green. That's a little bit different. Uh, but can be so essential, and especially when you have that kind of, there are a lot of tunes I feel that have kind of the Picardy third, like ending on a major. But if that yeah. major is a little bit off, it's so powerful. It can, it can, it can like bring me to tears almost. Like it's, and I don't know what that is. It's like it's it's a little chafing. I think sometimes like things need to feel a little bit unhinged for me to get really into them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It feels raw, yeah. maybe in a way, yeah. like a little bit raw. But. Um, you know, similar to the blues, actually. I mean, the tonality change is actually, or the tonality relationship is pretty similar there, I think. Kind of like sevenths and thirds seem to have this like innate quality of living somewhere in between, you know, on or off. Right. There's it's a sliding scale, and we don't question the blues necessarily either, like what the intentions are, right? We just kind of hear no. this is very emotional, uh, this very emotional thing. Like it's it speaks to us. Yeah. Playing a minor third over a major chord sounds great somehow. Right. <laughs> in the right so setting. You you went to uh, a folk music school in mm -hmm. Sweden. What yeah. what's the school called? Uh Hoviks Folkhögskola. And so in it's a it's an instance in Sweden where we have Folkhögskola. It's kind of like somewhere between a conservatory and a university and like a community school. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about it is that you can really get into specifics. I mean, the, the, at my school they had timber framing like as a course and also like wow. wildlife living and build your own teepee and survive in the woods as well yeah. as like Swedish folk music or jazz. So it's a really cool thing where you can spend like, you know, a few years really like only working on something very specific and niche. So yeah, so I went to that school and that's like where I really met some of my great teachers and great friends. I learned a ton from that. Uh, and this is after like, we actually had folk music theory. I thought it was really great. 
Uh, we talked about it with uh, Simon Stolspets. Shout out. He's an amazing guitarist, like sit turn player. Uh, and maybe we can provide some links or something. He has a band. Uh, they're really great. And the fiddle player in that band was the guy who taught me fiddle, Sergio. Um, so, well, yeah, Stockholm Lisboa Project, the Portuguese, like Swedish hybrid group. They're incredible. But we, yeah, so we talked about uh, those gravity nodes that we talked about a little bit, sort of like nodal theory, but also the sort of history of the um, intentionality of tone and pitch. Uh, and I've, you know, it's it taken me a long time to to appreciate the flavor of that, like learning to play. You know, I remember we listened to some old recordings and you the the homework was to learn it and to transcribe the tune and do it and play it as like close to the recording as possible. And that fiddle was really janky. Like he was very like, you know, quote out on tune uh, and kind of rough. But it, yeah, it, it's taken me a long while to appreciate the feel, the like performance of that, that there's like this playfulness to it. Um I probably got away from your question a little bit, but yeah. So I did go to folk music school, and we did to like we got to geek out really hard for a few years. That's so helpful because the next question is, when you had those folk music theory courses, which just uh, I'm so jealous. I think it's an amazing thing. Were there like, did the the teachers have spe specific language to talk about like how? how major your third is or like how big your seventh is or like how yeah was there a way of like designating okay on this one at this moment at the end of this phrase you're gonna make your your leading tone this big or the third is just gonna be this distant like how did how did they describe that in language where like they could tell you what to do or you could talk about what you had done right so uh there's a guy, Sven Albeck, I believe his name. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to. If that's not wrong, we can beep it and like insert something okay. there or something. Bill Johnson. <laughs> Bill Johnson, yeah. Uh, but he, he's, uh, he works at the Royal Academy of Music in Stockholm, and kind of runs or used to run anyway. I think part of their folk music program there. Uh, and he had this theory of like large dots and small dots. I think is a oh, way for cool. strong and small beats, a kind of a visual, yeah. visual reference to some of this music. Uh, so there are ways you can kind of invent language for it. Uh, yeah. And I've seen people do, you know, pluses for like intonation and minuses. You can kind of add, you know, if it's a, yep. a little bit sharper than it ought to be or something. Um, but I think mostly we, I, I think the best work was try to get away from the verbal aspects of that and kind of just integrate it as like just the music, right? Is to yeah. listen to it. And I know it sounds kind of like wooey to talk about it that way, but... Um, it's almost like it's really great to put names on stuff to be able to talk about it in like an ap academic setting. But then I think it's equally important to be able to like shed those concepts and kind of just embrace it in a personal 100%. level and not just like refer to the numbers or the language right. that you learned. Um, but yeah, no, it's great. And I, I mean, I wish I had more people to like geek out on specific like dot sizes with. <laughs> <laughs> I will do that with you anytime. Okay, Just awesome. call me up. We'll uh, yeah, we'll compare Great. sizes Can't of wait. our uh, of, of our of our yeah <laughs> of our dots <laughs> of our downbeats. <laughs> um, no, you make you make a a beautiful point, which is, and this is why I asked because without the confines of academia, you probably wouldn't even ever need language to talk about this stuff because right. it would be more like oh, play it until it sounds like this, or it didn't quite sound enough like that. But as soon as you put it in a classroom, even a folk music school classroom, 
um, there be, you know, questions arise or like, how do you, how do you talk to a group of people about how to do something that might be a little, um, amorphous or for which there hasn't been language before. Yeah. And it makes me think when you, when you first started talking about this topic, I had flashbacks to, th though I didn't go to a folk music school, um, of any sort, um, I've taught at one, the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, as you have. And then long before that, I was a student at several folk music camps here in the States where just for a week you get to go somewhere, usually somewhere gorgeous, like mm -hmm. in the mountains of North Carolina or the mountains of, of upstate New York or the mountains of Colorado and learn music from great musicians who know more about it than you do. <laughs> yep. And um, I had two experiences, at least two experiences where I was in a classroom and I witnessed um, students asking the teachers things in such a way that were obviously kind of fraught and the teachers were emotional about, or like were passionate about their response. I'll put it that way. Emotional's not the right word. We're all emotional. Mm -hmm. But um, one of them was Bruce Molsky, who mm -hmm. I think you know. Mm -hmm. And then the other is um, this wonderful singing instructor and incredible singer, Ginny Hawker. And they were both, Bruce in a fiddle class, and Ginny in a singing class were both asked a question by a, you know, well-meaning American student um, who did not grow up in in a traditional music household. <laughs> um, some version of like, oh, well, didn't that person, whoever the source was, didn't they just do it that way because they didn't know any better? Or mm -hmm. didn't they do that because they didn't have any, they didn't go to school for it? And there was always an un unintentional, hopefully, implication that like the source musician, the practitioner of this art form, like was not as smart as the person asking mm -hmm. the question. Like, sure. you know, the person asking the question was implying whether intentionally or not that like, weren't they kind of stupid that they, <laughs> you know, they did their third that way every time yeah. or when they sang that note, they slid into it from below. And I feel like Bruce's answer was that, well, if you listen to the full recording, they, they do that note the same way every time, mm -hmm. which it can't be a mistake if you're doing it, you know, 45 times in three minutes. Exactly. Yep. That's there's intention there. Yep. Um, and maybe maybe the artist isn't thinking about it because to them, it's just it, it's the way they want to play it. Yeah. It's you know, it's the best rendition of the song they can make in that moment. Yeah. Um, and it's beautiful. Yeah. I forget exactly what Ginny said, but it was along the similar lines that like, you know, approaching this from the outside as if the person whose music you're trying to learn was somehow inferior for playing it the way that they did mm. because it's different from what you expect is, is, is not very respectful to the tradition or to the performer. And it also there's kind of an imbalance between like, OK, you've paid all this money to go to a folk music camp. Right. <laughs> and here you are criticizing folk musicians for playing folk music yeah. the way that folk music is played. Right. Um, like, don't you? And, and both Bruce and Ginny, I think even if the person asking the question didn't understand, everyone else in the room understood their response. Sure. That like there's intention. And like you said, it's like culturally framed. And in, in, the, in America, there's not just one culture. And that's probably true in many countries. I've sure. only ever lived here, but this is very much a place with many cultures. And so it can be a little dangerous to learn another culture and approach it as if it's going to be a mirror image of your own. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Yeah. So what, what have you been up to recently? I moved away from Chicago, um, 
a couple of years ago and i mm-hmm. haven't seen you since then yeah. which makes me very sad i know um, likewise <clears throat> we're at the beginning of 2021 as we record this what what have you been doing musically and just generally in your life since i saw you last that you're willing to share on a nascent podcast right um well i've had some i've had some kind of interesting concepts float through my head i've been uh pestering my brain with uh some electronic music i'm trying to like i've been feeling inspired by other means of making music recently like what um well so like i've been kind of dipping my toes into like sequencers and like synths and kind of that whole bag um yeah and it's i i'm having a similar identity crisis like i will have with everything at the very moment (laughs) with that um kind of seeing like what is it what am i actually doing here and I'll be real, uh, I'll, I'll demonstrate some extreme candor here, radical candor, in that uh, I have felt kind of, uh, my main f- way of making music now has been on Instagram, believe it or not, just kind of as like, as a way to get rid of these little short bursts of creativity. I've been making these little one right. minute videos and I've been loving it, just like a fun process to get out of my head of making fiddle music or making sort of meaningful quote unquote stuff. Uh, <laughs> but now I feel like I'm kind of like getting to the point where I'm like, wait a minute, but if I'm only making one minute videos, am I not just, that's all I'm doing now. <laughs> so uh, having a little bit of a crisis with that, but I've been, I've been kind of trying to marry like, you know, to kind of touch back on what we talked about earlier. I've been trying to find a way to kind of marry all my, all my hobbies and passions in music. So I'm working on the guitar stuff, right? The same, I'm fighting the same demons with that. Uh, <laughs> and it seems like a lot of my creativity is kind of birthed out of limitations and or problems yeah. that I'm yeah. trying to solve. Sort of like, and a lot of times that can be physical problems. Like how do I get around this tuning? Or like, how do I use a synthesizer? Um, so I'm trying to find a way in which I can sort of integrate some of my folk music parts with maybe some sampling choppy stuff uh i enjoyed the whole reassemblance of digital music i enjoyed taking snippets of samples even if it's my own self i'm sampling and kind of chopping it yeah. up and messing with it yeah. um so i don't know i i think so much of it is just a product of having to be in my head so much the last year you know there hasn't been a lot of stimulus for me like being outside i get so stimulated by like people and going being in communities and hanging out with other musicians. So when that's taken away, I feel like I'm going to this less productive space <laughs> that oh, is more self-indulgent maybe and playful. So at the same time, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for my synthesizers. I feel like they've kind of gotten me through some of this year. Yeah. Uh, but I also feel a little bit ready now to kind of lift my gaze a little bit and try to make something like another album maybe. <laughs> I had I have Great. most of the works for another guitar album and then I never really pulled the trigger on the recording so yeah, I've been sitting on another guitar album. Now we'll see when it comes out. Um, I feel like I'm a little scared of like putting it out there too much because I had a thing on my website a while ago. I'm like new music coming out this day, and then like I'm like oh. psych, website taken down. Um, so we'll see. But I'm yeah trying to trying to figure out a way to record it. Honestly, it's funny we're sitting here recording a podcast. Maybe this is the first yeah. step of like pressing rec on something. Uh, yeah, because home recording seems like one of those things I really want to get good at, but it's it's kind of a lot to digest for someone like me who's not. I'm not like well versed in digital like audio workstations or microphones or anything. So, 
Yeah, trying to figure out a way how to record that. Maybe maybe once we have the vaccine, we can come. I'll fly over to you and you'll record me. I would love that. And uh, I've actually got, I, I love working with Dave Cinco and, and I'm scheming about things that he and I can do together um, for, for music recordings in the future. He's based in Nashville mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, but there's a great, great, musician and instigator and producer uh in here in colorado named jamie stone who plays the banjo oh, yeah. love jamie stone and he lives just a little ways south of here in uh, longmont colorado and he's in the process of of um building out a home studio i think i can i'll, I'll check with jamie i think i can tell this on a podcast um and we were talking about maybe making some recordings in his basement which lovely. is lovely yeah and uh, that would probably be the best spot in some ways um, if you wanted to come out. Because I would, I would do anything to make that happen. Let's to have do you it. Come, come visit and uh, help you make a guitar record. And we could do it at Jamie's um, or who knows, maybe if Cinco's coming through. Hey, let's <laughs> We make could it involve happen. him as well. <laughs> um, there, are all, there are all sorts of ways. But um, Patrick, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's like great to see you too. And just like to get to talk about <laughs> philosophical concepts of music. And uh, I'm really glad you thought of me. Yeah, you were uh, top of the list. And um, I'll make sure to include links when I post this podcast to your record on Bandcamp and Spotify and elsewhere. And then... Oh yeah, your your instructors at the school back in Sweden, who their bands, and anything else that you and I come up with before before this goes live. Um, but yeah, I I can't wait to see you in in reality. And until then, we'll all uh, tune into your Instagram and Yay. any other means we can find. And <laughs> and everyone should should try and beat me um, to be Patrick's number one fan on Spotify. I, challenge the challenge is open to anyone. <laughs> Anyone, anywhere in the world. Yes, come give me internet love. I need it. We're sending a lot to you from Colorado. (laughs) Thank you.
Support for this podcast comes from my Patreon community. At tiers ranging from $5 a month to $50 a month, patrons receive exclusive fiddle, banjo, and guitar lessons, as well as early access to my recordings before they go public. To add your support, go to patreon.com slash Dream. Thanks to Dave Cinco and Tim Brown for their audio engineering assistance and to my designer, Otto Allard. Tune in next time for another interview, and until then, relax your grid.